0: Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. Today we're talking to Marlena Doubt, Associate Professor of English at the University of Virginia. Marlena's scholarly work is focused largely on 19th-century American and Caribbean literary and cultural studies. And this year, as a fellow at the National Humanities Center, she's working on an anthology of Haitian revolutionary fictions. In this work, she's examining a broad assortment of literary works from around the Atlantic world to compare the ways the Haitian Revolution was represented and understood in the Caribbean, the Americas, and beyond. Welcome, Marlena. Thank you for having me. So remind us a bit about the Haitian Revolution. When? Why? How?
1: So the sort of scholarly periodization of the Revolution goes from about 1791 to 1804. But what's interesting is the works in the collection actually sort of precede that date because there were events uh, that were important to the Haitian Revolution that ended up kind of being fictionalized before that. For example, there's a short story called Le Macandal that was published in 1787 about a a famous uh, poisoning by a slave in 1758. But so the Revolution um, was really fought by formerly enslaved people and free people of color in order to bring um, liberty to the enslaved Africans of Saint-Domingue and independence. So um, really to sort of keep the French from, you know, continuing to colonize the island and uh, subsequently to proclaim the island independent, um, you know, which it remains uh, independent today.
0: And why have, for example, American students not heard about the Haitian Revolution very much?
1: Well, I suppose that the, again, the the sort of received explanation is that the Haitian Revolution has been silenced in world history. And what's really interesting about that is I think that's true, but I think it's a silencing that actually happens much later than the period I'm studying, which is the 19th century. This is a more recent phenomenon. In the 19th century, which is what I hope to demonstrate with this anthology, really everyone was talking about the Haitian Revolution. So far, I have cataloged about 150 fictions of the Haitian Revolution novels, poetry plays, short stories that were written about and circulated in the 19th century in Portuguese, English, French, German, and I hope one day to find some in maybe Russian or some other uh, languages to see how far the reach of the Haitian Revolution really was. So uh, why American students aren't familiar with it is mostly because it isn't being taught, I think, although uh, that's starting to change. Um, I've had school teachers contacting me um, saying that the Haitian Revolution is a part of the Common Core curriculum. Now, so mm-hmm. hopefully things will be very different soon.
0: And when you're putting together an anthology, or, or talk to us a little bit about how you put together an anthology. I mean, you have such a rich array of texts, of documents. What's the process of selection that you're using for this particular anthology, and how do you develop the various categories that you're developing?
1: So I have kind of three main categories. So in the first category are works that make passing reference to the Haitian Revolution or to slavery in Saint-Domingue or slave revolt and rebellion um, in Saint-Domingue. And the second category are works that are not really about maybe even slavery. Certainly, they're not about the Haitian Revolution, but they devote whole chapters, large passages, to describing the events of the Revolution or describing revolt and rebellion on on the island of Hispaniola. The third category are works that are entirely about the Haitian Revolution. So that makes up the bulk of the fictional works. But the introduction is really designed to situate that first category, which I think is also really important to the rest of the excerpts that appear. So for example, there are three poems by Emily Dickinson, in which she references San Domingo, and they're, they're very ambiguous references. And what do they mean? What did she mean by that? Um, and so, those are questions that I really kind of want to put forward and just kind of open up a conversation about in the introduction. Um, and so, we can figure out together sort of what do we do with the passing reference? What do we do with, you know, reference that's more substantial, but it sort of seems out of place. Uh, there's a novel called A Winter in Dublin, and like many good 19th century texts. It's four volumes long. And one of the volumes about this winter in Dublin, for example, takes us to Saint-Domingue. And why is that? Um, Why did we go there? Why was that necessary? Why was that in the writer's consciousness? So these are some of the questions I'm hoping to not necessarily answer with the anthology, but to really kind of bring forward. And I hope other researchers will find it very useful and try to answer the questions themselves.
0: When you talk about the Haitian Revolution having been narrated through racialized lenses, what does that mean?
1: What's really interesting to me is um, that there are kind of three main categories of actors who are seen to be involved in the Haitian Revolution. So you have kind of white planters, French colonists, then you have free people of color, uh, and then you have the enslaved Africans. And so there's a kind of idea that you could break these three groups down into whites, mulattoes, and blacks. Of course, the specialists of the period know that that's not true. But for some reason, when the Haitian Revolution gets narrated in popular history, that's the way it sort of appears. and so these sort of narratives of racialized vengeance end up uh, surfacing and part of that is that that's how the Haitian revolution was narrated a lot of times in its own era Um, especially in the beginning you found 18th century writers who are really living this revolution saying I know that all the free people of color aren't quote-unquote mulattoes, but I'm going to refer to them that way anyway because it's just easier, it will be easier for me to narrate this story if I if I break people down into these groups. But all of these racial categories were contested. There's a sort of infamous episode in which the uh, Martinican naturalist, Mohou de saint Marie, who was a French colonist, is accused of himself being a free person of color, so not really white, by Julien Raymond, who was an 18th century free person of color living in the colony. So it's really... Um, the the broad categories that people use to try to explain and understand the Haitian Revolution, and then how people later sort of accepted that, which is what you see in the in the literature that's in this anthology, is just a sort of acceptance of here are three categories of people, and this is what they did during the revolution, and the repetition of those ideas over and over again.
0: So is it fair to say that um, the Haitian Revolution, which one would think that telling the story of the Haitian Revolution would be an inspiration for freedom from slavery or other movements to free oppression from slavery. But this racialized lens or racialized lenses did quite the opposite.
1: Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it really kind of encouraged fears, stoked fears about racial warfare. So in the United States, you find senators on the floor of Congress, Thomas Jefferson famously, many people saying these cannibals of the terrible republic, they want to eat whites. Uh, Victor Hugo's famous novel, Boug Jargal, claims that, you know, the philanthropists in France created the eaters of the whites, the Negroes. And so rather than viewing the revolution as a beacon for hope, which is what abolitionists wanted, like the Abbé Grégoire, many sort of ordinary writers and journalists uh, in the United States and England and France, initially at least, you know, were pretty afraid of the Haitian Revolution. Of course, this was very different in communities of color. For example, in the pages of Freedom's Journal, the Colored American and other black newspapers of the 19th century, where you really find that Haiti does surface and the Haitian Revolution surface as a hope, a wish for the future, and really that kind of beacon in that the Abbey Clegoire described it as.
0: So you're doing a kind of transatlantic history in a sense, and could you talk to us a little bit about how doing such a history, the methodology for doing such a history, the very project, challenges some of the traditional boundaries of, of how we do history, how we receive history?
1: Absolutely. So one of the things I sort of thought about in organizing this anthology was, you know, we tend to organize anthologies around kind of national affiliation. So here's an anthology of US literature. Or here's an anthology of British literature. But the topical anthology really is kind of um, basing the organization on what you might think of as a text network, um, to use Kirsten silva and, and Susan Gilman's term. So we're having an organization that is about some other kinds of affiliations. And in this case, it's the Haitian Revolution. Um, And so one of the things I wanna be demonstrating is that these events are not just sort of retroactively being understood as uh, transnational events, but that in their own era and for a really long time afterwards, they were understood as as events that had meaning and significance really for the entire world. When you look at um, when you go beyond fiction, which is what I did in my first book, to see that in the Netherlands, um, in Sweden, in all of these other places, uh, you know, the Haitian Revolution is being written about in Cuba, for example, um, and so it's having a, really this transnational reach.
0: And you're also talking about a transatlantic print culture. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us what that means?
1: Sure, so print culture is one of those heavily contested terms. But here I'm using it really to describe how there was a constant kind of um, printing and reprinting, sometimes without authorization, of other people's words that creates an entire kind of culture of print. So it it didn't really matter who said what or in what context. You could sort of lift it and put it in another context, uh, which is exactly what we find, for example, John Beard in his The Life of Toussaint Louverture, in which he wants to quote Victor Hugo because he knows his readers know Victor Hugo, but the passage he's taking from Victor Hugo was actually taken from another writer, Pamphile de la Croix, before that. So in which it sort of doesn't really matter whose ideas you're taking and when. And then, of course, the famous case is William Wells Brown, the African-American writer, lifts Beard's biography and puts it not only into a uh, speech about the Haitian Revolution, but into what's considered by many to be the first African-American novel Clotel or the President's Daughter. So passages from Beard's biography about L'ouverture end up being transposed into this novel that really has nothing on the surface uh, to do with Haiti. So that's the kind of print culture that I'm talking about, a culture of repetition.
0: So the very sort of uh, legacies of the Enlightenment, uh, the terminology that comes from those legacies, like freedom and democracy and, and equality, these are being rendered problematic via the project that you're working on.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say that the French Revolution and the American Revolution, they really kind of theorized what democracy looked like and freedom and independence, but they didn't materialize it, right? Because there were enslaved Africans in the colonies and on the mainland of North America. But the Haitian Revolution, rather than sort of saying, no, these terms are, are not useful because they weren't put into proper practice, really demonstrated what it would look like when freedom and equality were extended to all the members of a nation state. So really defined population of people, they were very adamant that this was, you know, not something that they were necessarily hoping to export to other colonies, because that would put them in danger. But so for their entire, for their country, um, that people were going to be free and independent. Um, And so I I see it as a contest between theorizing liberty and equality and making that actually happen, putting it into practice.
0: But in the popular imagination, in in popular culture, in popular literature, etc., I'm thinking, for example, of Madison Smarts Bell's novel, um, the Haitian Revolution has become increasingly central, it seems. Can you talk a little bit about a text or two or a film that does that, that celebrates it or at least delves into it?
1: Sure. Oh, there there are many. So um, Edouard Grisson for example, writes his Monsieur Toussaint's play. Um, Aimé Césaire has a play about Henri Christophe called La Tragedie d'Henri Christophe. CLR James wrote a play about Toussaint Louverture as well. In fact, he wrote several different versions of it. And so I think that the Haitian Revolution hasn't ever really completely gone away, but it seems to be enjoying a little bit of a revival, the kind of revival that it enjoyed in the early 20th century and then sort of went away for a while. And has now come back and there's supposedly a movie about the Haitian Revolution, a Hollywood movie that a script has been written with Danny Glover supposed to be starring in it um, that hasn't happened and when you read the reasons for which that hasn't happened uh, you know sort of editors saying well you know there's not like a a hero figure that people will relate to because the Haitian Revolution of course is very violent that uh, you see that there's still a little bit of work of unsilencing that we have to do um, even as we sort of talk more and more about the Haitian Revolution.
0: So when this anthology is completed, if if I can get you to project forward a bit, what effect on scholarship do you hope it will have?
1: I really hope that people will return to it again and add to it. And so it has a digital component, a website, uh, HaitianRevolutionaryFictions.com, where I ask people, you know, they can contribute and write to me and tell me, what am I missing? What have you seen out there? And so I hope that if somebody, you know, who's doing something completely unrelated, maybe they're working in the Chinese uh, literature, sees a reference to the Haitian Revolution, that um, maybe that wouldn't have seemed important to them before, but maybe now they're really interested in how the Haitian Revolution traveled from this hemisphere to their hemisphere. Um, And so I really just hope it encourages people to mine uh, the archives and to continue to uncover all the places in which the Haitian Revolution was discussed, the effect that it had, and really just continue to keep it alive um, in world memory.
0: We've been talking with Marlena Dalt about her project, developing an anthology on the Haitian Revolution. Marlena will be talking further about the Haitian Atlantic in a public lecture here at the National Humanities Center on Thursday, November 10th. Thank you, Marlena. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. And please join us again for another podcast from the National Humanities Center.
1: Thank you.